In the 17th century, the English politician Andrew Marvel wrote, of all that we might accomplish if not for our limitations as humans. He said, had we but world enough and time. Or as Chaucer penned three centuries earlier, time flies and for no man will abide. Or turning back the clock even further, in the first century, the Roman poet Virgil said, time flies irretrievably. Despite the cautions of these and so many other writers about time, we humans persist in various attempts to master time. Indeed, next Sunday in most parts of the country, daylight savings time will begin at 2 a.m. Get ready to spring forward. Uh, You do lose an hour of sleep, but you gain more daylight in the evenings. I personally think messing with time twice a year is a terrible idea that we should stop. Uh, The disruption to our internal sense of time I don't think is worth it. Uh, But for now, I'm more interested in all those aspects of time that remain outside of our human control. Time is actually quite a slippery concept. On the one hand, studies have shown time to be the number one most commonly used noun in the English language. That makes sense. Uh, Time is central to our human experience. When we're not asking for time, we're speaking of saving time or killing time, serving time, keeping time, not having time, tracking time, bedtime. Time out, buying time, good times, travel time, overtime, free time. And the one that may be on the forefront of some of your minds, lunchtime. (laughs) On the other hand, the more you study time, the more people will usually confess that for the most part, we rarely have a good idea of what we're talking about regarding time. As Augustine of Hippo said more than 1,500 years ago, what then is time? If no one asks me, I know precisely what it is. But if I wish to explain it to someone, I don't know what to say. But surely we figured out a few things about time in the past millennia and a half since Augustine's time. If we turn to the 20th century physicist Richard Feynman, he said, maybe it's just as well we face the fact that time is one of those things we probably can't define. What really matters, he said, anyway, is not how we define time, but how we measure it. As Einstein showed us, time is relative, so Feynman is highlighting that what arguably matters most is how we measure that relative distance between two times. I'll say more about that momentarily. Uh, But first, as an inspiration for this exploration, allow me to introduce, to those of you who don't know him, the Italian physicist Carlo Rovelli. If I had to limit myself to recommending one book on the nature of time, I'd recommend that you read his recent book, The Order of Time. It has the virtue of not taking much time to read. It's short. It's about 200 pages. It's also like four inches by six inches. It's, it's pretty tiny. And it's easily readable. I don't, I don't think this is a controversial statement that unlike many scientists, he's actually a good writer. Um, he has a beautiful, accessible writing style. Uh, have any of you read his books? He also wrote seven, um, seven Brief Lessons on Physics. I see a, a hand or two. He, he's really excellent. He's been described as the new Stephen Hawking. I actually find him more understandable than Stephen Hawking. If any of you tried to read A Brief History of Time uh, by Hawking, uh, around 
around, at least for me, around chapter four on black holes, I was like, he's still writing in English, but I'm not tracking uh, what he's talking about anymore. The first three chapters, I was good, but... Uh, to begin to reflect further on time, if I look around the room, I see various clocks. My wrist tells me it's 12.03 and 34, 35, 36 uh, seconds. Uh, the, you have a pulpit clock? The pulpit clock agrees. It also says it's 12.03, and um, it looks about right on this clock on the back of the roll, though I'm sure that second hand doesn't quite agree with um, the, the minutes on my watch. Uh, you may well have a watch or a phone that could add further iterations to what time it is. And whatever, whenever one or more clocks disagree, our typical sense is that there is some independent universal standard of time to which we could reset all these clocks. But the truth is actually more complicated than that. In the words of one time researcher, time as we typically think of it is actually nothing more than what everyone agrees time is. It's a social construct. Uh, Now, come on, you might say. We lived almost two decades into the 21st century. Surely there's an ultra-precise clock in a room somewhere that we can consult to give us the one true answer to what time it is. I'll let you in on a secret. There isn't. Uh, But it is true that 30 miles away from here in Gaithersburg, Maryland, there's one of two laboratories of NIST, the um, National Institute of Standards and Technology. It's a federal agency that helps produce the official civil time of the United States. So you could go to um, Gaithersburg, and what you'd find in that laboratory is a dozen or more cesium clocks, not one clock, but a dozen or more running at any given time. And as precise as these clocks are at any given time, so to speak, they disagree with each other at least on the uh, level of nanoseconds. So every 12 minutes they're compared and the data from that clock ensemble is then numerically mashed into the basis for official time. So the clock on your laptop or desktop computer, it's actually calibrated by occasionally running through servers run by the NIST or um, related agencies around the world. Similarly, if you have a cell phone, that clock is set through the GPS system, the Global Positioning Satellite, and that is linked to the Naval Observatory in in Washington, D.C., which utilizes a system of more than 70 cesium clocks, not just one. So there is no one world's best clock. Rather, what is known as coordinated universal time is calculated only on paper and only in retrospect. If, for instance, you were to ask Dr. Eliza Arias, who's the director of the time department at the Bureau for International Weights and Measures, yes, that exists, Uh, if you were to ask her what is the best clock in the world, she would hand you the circular T. This isn't that, but pretend it is. It's a newsletter, Uh, a monthly newsletter documenting the difference between coordinated universal time and the local realization of that as measured by any particular laboratory on any particular day. So it turns out the world's best time does not come from a super smart clock, but from a committee. Now, they do use, you know, advanced computers and algorithms and the input of atomic clocks, but those meta-calculations, the slight favoring of one clock's output over another, is ultimately filtered through the conversations of thoughtful scientists. So time, it turns out, is a group of people talking. That's not, however, how we conveniently, conventionally think of time or how scientists classically conceived of time. Isaac Newton, no scientific slouch, thought of time as absolute. He taught that time is, uh, there's a true universal time that's applied to all times and places unequivocally. 
That was a reasonable perspective in the 18th century. But we now know that the truth is more complicated, as Einstein wrote about um, in a series of papers he published in his Miracle Year of 1905. And it's no coincidence that Einstein formulated his theories of relativity in the wake of working in the Swiss patent office. One of the things he dealt with specifically was a, were patents related to the synchronization of clocks in railway stations. So he was intimately familiar with this whole trying to sync up clocks and what to and how do we think about that and the lack of one universal time. And after Einstein, we, knew that, we know that space and time are not these universal isolated phenomena. They are relative to each other. That's why scientists, you may have seen those, that conflated word space-time, right? Uh, that it's really, though, even more complicated than that. The truth is more like space-times, plural. The bizarre truth, as numerous scientific studies have shown, is that if you are on top of a mountain, time passes faster than if you're basking in the sun at sea level. That's wild to me. Um, A clock placed on the floor actually runs, if you can measure it precisely enough, a little more slowly than one placed on a table. Speed, in contrast, slows down time. The closer you move to the speed of light, the slower time passes. That's wild, too. So although agreeing upon a coordinated universal time has many benefits to us locally here on Earth, it keeps the trains and planes running on time, it helps us meet up with each other on schedule, again, there's an important sense in which that's all just a social construct. Let me say a little bit more about that. If you were to ask whether a clock on the floor or a clock on a table was more accurate, there's a sense in which physicists tell us that's not a good question to ask. Uh, it's, uh, it's meaningless in some ways. We might just as well ask what's most real, the value of sterling in, the dollar, in dollars or the value of, dollar in, value of a dollar in sterling. Like it's, There's no truer value. You just have two currencies that have value relative to each other. There's no truer time, you know, between the clock on the mountain and the clock at sea level. They're just two times that are relative to each other. Times are legion. And although that may feel like a claim that is through the looking glass in Alice in Wonderland, it is also what science tells us is the case in this sometimes uncanny reality in which we find ourselves. As Philip K. Dick sometimes said, uh, the science fiction writer, he said, reality is what doesn't go away when you stop believing in it. Uh, so it's, it's kind of like that. Let me give you another example. Imagine that your best friend has traveled to Proxima B. That's a recently discovered planet that's four light years away. What if you were to ask, what is my friend doing now, right now on Proxima B, four light years away? Scientists invite us again to consider that is not a good question to ask. It's arguably a category error. It makes no sense. I'll, let me say why through a series of increasingly large comparisons. If your friend is in this room, you can look at somebody in this room if you'd like to, uh, and you ask, what are you doing now? The answer is a pretty easy one. You're looking. You can tell what they're doing. Um, the light, though, does technically take a few fractions of a second to get from them to your eyeball. Therefore, you're not quite seeing what they're doing now. You're seeing what they did a few nanoseconds ago, right? It's good enough, but uh, now pretend your friend, instead of being right beside you, is in New York, and you call them on the phone. Their voice takes a few milliseconds to reach you, so the most you can claim to know is what your friend was doing a few milliseconds ago. That's, again, 
good enough for us most of the time. But if your friend were on Proxima B, light would take four years to reach you. If 10 years ago your friend had left for Proxima B, taking with them a calendar to keep track of the, you know, the passage of time in their present, can we think of it Can we think of now for then as when they have recorded that 10 years for them have passed? No. No, you cannot. Uh, Some of your brains are going to start to hurt. The pain will be over soon. Uh, They might have returned here 10 of their years after leaving, arriving back here, where in the meantime, 20 years will have passed for us because time moves slower the faster you go to the speed of light. So when the hell is now on Proxima B, you may be thinking... The truth is, we need to give up the question. Along these lines, one one of physicist Carlo Rovalli's catchphrases is that now is meaningless because there are space-times plural throughout the universe. More elaborately, our present does not extend throughout the universe. It is at most a bubble around us. Again, bizarre, but true. We're accustomed to thinking of the world as made up of nouns, what we called in my elementary school uh, grammar classes, people, places, or things. But the universe is really much more of a verb than a noun. It's more accurate to think of the universe less as made up of entities and substances, substances and more of made up of events, of happenings, of processes in relationship to one another. As the particle physicist um, Karen Barad explores in her excellent but difficult book, Meeting the Universe Halfway, go read Ravelli twice before you even think about reading Barad. (laughs) She writes that time is not a succession of evenly spaced individual moments. Space is not a collection of pre-existing points. Rather, spatiality is intraactively produced. I'll say that one more time. Spatiality is intraactively produced. Produced. Think about the difference between intermurals, I-N-T-E-R, so that's competitions between two different schools, right, versus intramurals, I-N-T-R-A. Intramurals are when you have two teams made up from within the same school, right, relating to each other. So that's part of what she's talking about, that spatiality is intraactively produced by things that are processes in relationship to each other. Our UU fifth source counsels us to heed the guidance of reason and the results of science. And part of what innumerable scientific studies have shown is that reality is not as it always appears. I know there's some geeky astronomy types out here who actually do think of the sun, think of us as like rotating around the sun. But for most of us, we think of the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, right? We know that technically the earth is round, but most of the time we think of it as flat. Like, so it's, it's similar to that with time, that we think of time and space as this uniform thing, but we know from many scientific experiments that time slows down according to altitude and speed. We know that the present basically doesn't exist, the fact that relations between time are dynamic. Science is many things, but it doesn't have to be boring. Uh, and to me, one of the takeaways is to begin to appreciate that We're just more complex than our mental faculties are capable of grasping. Um, The quantum physicist J.S. Haldane used to say it this way. He said, the universe is not only queerer than you suppose, it is actually queerer than you can suppose. 
Or Neil deGrasse Tyson, the Femenio Cosmos, the new, he, he says sometimes that the universe is under no obligation to make sense to you, <laughs> right? Like our reason is a helpful tool, but it doesn't get us all the way down. We barely see just a tiny window of the vast electromagnetic spectrum that's emitted by things. We don't see the atomic structure of matter nor the curvature of space. We see or think we see, um, at least it works out for us most of the time, a coherent world that we extrapolate from our interactions with the universe, but it's organized in the simplistic terms that our primate brains can grok. Certainly one response to such truths is to be overwhelmed at the actual bizarreness of it all. But another equally legitimate response is simple awe. Wonder at this incredible reality in which we find ourselves. And gratitude for all the ways that we have, along with a little help from science and our personal experience, been able to grasp and actually unlock some of the mysteries of the universe. To briefly say just a bit more, I think part of the invitation of realizing that time is a social construct in some ways is an invitation to construct it differently, right? There, There are movements out there called things like time rebels who say, you know, like, I'm taking off the watch, right? I'm gonna eat when I'm hungry, I'm gonna go to bed when I'm tired, I'm, you know, so you can, or, you know, uh, think of Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel who used to talk about the Sabbath as a sanctuary in time. You know, an an invitation to receive the day instead of just managing it. But I will say one last thing um, about time management. Uh, We've been talking about that with the staff. And uh, I do caution against overly managing your time, setting up what I sometimes call like regimes of oppression for ourselves, (laughs) of how we schedule ourselves. Uh, But some of what the staff and I have been talking about is noticing things like very rarely, almost never, will anyone call or email or knock on your door because they're wanting to help you advance your core agenda, right? They're calling you to help advance their agenda, (laughs) right? Which may align. I mean, there are times when like various ones of you call or email me and it's to help with something that's related to things I care about, but what you're not emailing me about to give you an example is, oh, here's the fourth paragraph for your sermon on Sunday, right? So there are things that each of us uniquely want to get done that basically no one's going to help us with, and the thing to be aware of um, regarding time is, is how we're shaping that and how we are and aren't allowing people to um, interrupt us or you know, to ever carve out time when we're kind of doing deep work for ourselves, or to think about things like Every hour is not created equal, right? At least our relationship to it isn't. That there are times when we're tired, times when we're more alert and more focused. So are you allowing that kind of first best energy to be hijacked by other people's agenda in email? Or are you carving out time to advance those things that you're not getting to? So just things to think about in, in, in this dance with time that we're all in. And so as you prepare to go into the time that is the rest of the afternoon and week, um, whatever time you find yourself in, may you continue your journey in love. Care for one another in the short time that we have together. Care for this earth. Do justice, make peace, and know that whatever taste or touch you've had in this time, in this place, uh, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. May you live boldly. May you live with thanksgiving.